everyone, and welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish. And I'm Maddie. And we're back with you again with an all-new episode. We're in December now, so I hope everyone had a good, in the U.S., a good Thanksgiving. If you gathered in person or remotely, hope everybody was happy and healthy and stuff full of tryptophan. (laughs) (laughs) How was your Thanksgiving? It was good. We saw each other on Thanksgiving. We did. We had because we're kind of family (laughs) at this point. (laughs) We did. We gathered around outside, Mm -hmm. around the fire that night. Because here in Pennsylvania, it was it was warm. Yeah, it was for Pennsylvania. Yeah, it was warm. Yeah, and my daughter was very excited to eat spaghetti with your son. She was still talking about it. Really? How she got to eat pasta with your son? I told you it's like a lady and a tramp kind of thing. (laughs) My son, of course, being the tramp. So. He does too. He was like, because he had spaghetti tonight and it reminded him Mm. and he was asking for your daughter. I said, well, maybe someday we can have pasta again. It's it's a staple of our diet. Since you have it every other day. (laughs) Right. Since that is pretty much all he eats. All right. So we're going to get started. But before we start on this week's episode, I have some updated crime news of some cases that we have covered in the past that were recently in the news. Can we insert like a news flash clip? Like da, 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 yeah, something like that. Yeah. So pardon that interruption. Maddie had to get up and let my dog in. Otto. So he can watch me. Yes. Otto is very protective. Crime news. Dun, 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 dun. That's our low tech version of <laughs> letting you know we're coming up with a new segment. So these were a couple things mentioned in the news recently. One was Julius Jones. That's a case we covered out in Oklahoma. He is sitting on death row and Kim Kardashian West has paid him a visit. She went to see him in prison. She is or has turned an advocate, I should say, for people she feels are wrongly incarcerated, Julius being one of them. So she is a big supporter of his bid for clemency, which he applied for, I believe, the other year. So nothing has been decided. I'm sure coronavirus kind of... Which I'm surprised that she was even able to visit. She physically visited? Or yeah. she did do a televisit? She physically visited him, is my understanding. Now, granted, they probably were separated and partitioned and everything off. But yeah, she did pay him a visit. So his family was very happy that it boosted awareness of his case. And they've seen a lot more traffic on his website or the website they have set up for him, Justice for Julius. And the four is a number four, in case you want to look that up. And the other case is Sheila Keen Warren. She's our clown killer from Florida. She was also in the news over the Thanksgiving week because evidence was released from the prosecutor's office that was put in the news, like how they nailed down or, or why they charged her specifically with the murder of her lovers slash husbands, because he's now her husband, but back then he wasn't, wife. And that was a brunette hair that was found in the getaway vehicle that had a root still attached. So back when they discovered this, of course, they didn't have the DNA testing. And as time went on, it just sat on a shelf till I believe the police department got a federal grant. So they were able to open up a lot of these cold cases. And this was the one of the things they tested. And of course, it matched. So that led to Sheila Keen Warren's arrest. And in addition, the orange wig that the killer had been wearing as part of the clown costume, those wig fibers matched fibers found on shoes owned by Sheila Keen Warren. And those fibers were also found in the getaway vehicle, which was a LeBaron. So if you haven't listened to those two cases, you can go back in our archives and listen to them. I believe they were all season one. Yes, I think so. Yes. And the other crime news is Leslie Van Houten who 
Shockingly, Maddie didn't recognize her name for any true crime buff. I'm not good with names. Okay, but when I said Manson family. Yeah, then I was like, oh, yeah. Okay, Okay, I got you. So California Governor Gavin Newsom has blocked parole for Leslie Van Houten, and this is the fourth time she has been denied. Now, parole boards have been recommending her release four times, and... They have now been denied two under the previous governor and two by Newsom. Now, Leslie Van Houten was convicted at the age of 19. She is part of the Manson family in the LaBianca murders. Mm -hmm. She was not involved in the first night's killing of the Sharon Tate. So she was only in the second night. And she was 19 at the time of her arrest and conviction. And she has been in prison ever since. So Newsom based his denial on the fact that he felt that Van Houten was still a danger to society. Does that mean... (laughs) He did that because he knows he's going to get spotted by the public if he lets her out. Well, do Is you want to be? Means? I don't know. But do you want to <laughs> be the person that rubber stamps a release of? And we talked about this the other episode when we talked about Susan Smith. Do we believe she should be granted parole for what she did? And I just think there's some crimes committed that, yeah, you've kind of given up your right to be free. She was originally convicted, was a death penalty case. Mm-hmm. And she and the others were all convicted and sentenced to death. But then California found it unconstitutional. So everybody's sentence was commuted to life. Mm-hmm. That's where she is in prison. I think one of the man's, I think one of the girls has died. I forget who that was. She died in prison. And I think two of them, including Leslie, are still in jail, along with Tex Watson and I believe another guy. Yeah, that sounds right. They won't be getting released, I'm sure, anytime soon. So that's it for crime news. There you go. All right. So we are going to move on to our case. We're still going to be out west. And this is the case of the Sleepwalker murder. So our location this time is in Phoenix, Arizona, which serves as the capital of the state of Arizona, and it's located in Maricopa County. Phoenix was not the original capital of what was known back then as Arizona Territory. That went between Prescott and Tucson, and that was up until 1889, and then it became Phoenix. They settled on the capital. Now, this area receives 320 days of sun a year. That's insane. That's not good for your skin, guys. Wear sunscreen. That is correct. I used to live there. (laughs) So when I was younger, I think my dad was stationed at Luke's Air Force Base. And so we lived there for a time. And and if anybody lives in Arizona or has been to Arizona, you know you don't really go out in the daytime. It's hot. I can imagine. (laughs) There's no humidity. So in Pennsylvania, we have a lot of humidity. Mm -hmm. It is scorching. So one of the hottest temperatures on record was 122 degrees Fahrenheit or 50 degrees Celsius for our European listeners, because here in the U.S., We don't do metric. And that was on June 26, 1990. Now, some famous celebrities from Arizona include Emma Stone, David Spade, and the original Wonder Woman, Linda Carter. Woohoo. Did you ever watch the original? The original? Uh, Bits and pieces. I don't think I've seen the whole thing. But you're also superhero obsessed. You would be proud of my daughter. We were on the Disney Plus app yesterday and we were scrolling through trying to find a movie and she wanted originally a Disney princess, but then she saw Captain Marvel. (gasps) She was like, mommy. Yes. So we watched that? We did. That is empowering to young girls. I mean, Linda Carter, Wonder Woman, really was it when I was growing up. It was all male superheroes. Or you had like, you know, Batgirl. So that was, yeah. <laughs> that was it. Which was really just a man's version of a female superhero. Correct. Yeah. All right. So in the late evening hours of January 16th, 1997, neighbors were awoken to screams and dogs barking coming from a residential home. One of the neighbors that had heard the scream had gone to the fence that separated his yard from his neighbors, the fillators. I've heard fillators. I've heard phalaters. I'm going to go with fillators. That is when he heard someone moaning. And he thought, oh, 
well, maybe they're, I'm going to say, making love in the backyard, having sex, whichever you prefer. So he's kind of like, I'm not sure what's going on here. But he looked anyways. And what he saw was Yarmila Falater lying on the ground. And Scott, her husband, he then saw come out of the house. He quieted down the family dog that was barking. He went over to Yarmila and he pushed her into the swimming pool and held her head underwater. Now the neighbor, Greg Coons, called 911 telling the operator that the husband just threw, I believe the wife, into the pool and it looks like he's holding her underwater. Now asked by the 911 dispatcher if the couple had been fighting, the neighbor responded, well, I, I don't really know what the problem is. It was just weird how I came upon this, but he was concerned. Concerned? I was con- I'm was. a concerned citizen no judgment but i feel like i would have been jumping over that fence i mean granted I'm like a what small are you woman. doing yeah yeah like get all, i don't know right but i wasn't in that situation so you never know you I never know at least he called nine one one, and at least he investigated he could That's have assumed true. like oh they're just making love and he could have gone back inside and just closed his doors that's true good job greg so when police arrived they found 44 year old yarmila falater floating in the pool and she also appeared to have been stabbed several times now yarmila's husband scott falater and their two teenage children were still sleeping inside when the police arrived even though scott had clearly been awake so when he was awoken he appeared very very dazed and confused and asked why the police were at his home. He didn't seem to know why they were there. He was asked by the police how many people were in the house and Scott responded there were four of them, him, his wife, and two children. The children reported that they had heard nothing and they had been sleeping this entire time when the police had awoken them. So the police transported Scott down to police headquarters expecting him to confess to murdering his wife. You know, we have a witness. Your wife is clearly dead. Didn't look like anybody broke into the home or anything like that. Unfortunately, Scott didn't. Even when he was confronted with all this information of of seeing the neighbor seeing him drag Yarmela to the family pool and hold her underwater, Scott told police he had no memory of putting his wife into the pool. Now, he didn't deny that he clearly was involved in his wife's death, but he kept reiterating that he had no memory of doing so. So Yarmila's autopsy would show that she had been stabbed 44 times with a hunting knife and she had water in her lungs, which meant she was still alive when she was dragged into the pool. So Scott and Yarmila Falater, they had met in high school and they later married while attending college. So they're their kind of high school sweetheart story. Both completed their undergraduate's degrees and went on to obtain master's degree. Scott became an electrical engineer and Yarmila, she was teaching as a preschool teacher's aide. So it sounded like kind of a daycare setting, which kind of threw me off because I'm like, well, with your master's with your master's but hey maybe (laughs) you know she just wanted to kind of really like kids so the Falaters by all accounts had a good marriage they had been married for close to 20 years and both were actively involved in their Mormon church Scott more so than Yarmila I believe he was like a youth counselor and he did some other things in the church I mean he did was an active member he was a very active member of the Mormon church and there was no history of violence in the marriage or criminal offenses charged to either spouse I mean friends and family were all questioned co-workers were questioned and nobody had anything or saw anything negative in this relationship so investigators were really baffled as to why he would kill her so police conducted a search of the home and property of the Falaters, and in the back of scott's car police found a clear plastic container almost like a tupperware container and they found bloody clothes and a hunting knife now when police questioned family and friends again They reported no issues in the marriage that they were aware of. Scott's sister, however, reported that she may have known why Scott didn't remember anything. And that is because he had a history of sleepwalking. 
Now, back when they were younger living in Illinois, Scott had been sleepwalking one night and she went to stop him, which apparently is a big no-no when somebody sleepwalks. And that caused him to throw her across the room. She startled him when she woke him and he threw her across the room. So that was the one violent attack she mentioned. So sleepwalking is also known as somnambulism. It is a behavioral condition in which a person in a deep sleep can walk or even perform complex tasks while remaining mostly asleep. Sleepwalking itself is a sleep disorder called parasomnia. It is a rare condition and it is found actually more in children than adults. So it's like 29% of children this can be found in and only about as you grow older it lessens about 4% of the adult population and this was according to one long-term study I had read. Incidents of sleepwalking usually only last 10 minutes, maybe 20 minutes max. It's not half hour, 45 minutes or an hour. Now, Scott Falliter had undergone a sleep study over a four-night period in which he was closely monitored. And this was done after his arrest. So I believe he had gotten a defense attorney and they wanted to start gathering some scientific data. And the results showed hypersynchronous delta waves that are associated with people who sleepwalk. Now, sleepwalkers are also known to not have any concept of facial recognition. So when they're in that state, of sleepwalking, they wouldn't recognize somebody that they've been married to for close to 20 years. So now Scott told police what he did remember from that night. He told them that earlier that evening, he had been fixing a pool pump when Yarmila called him into the house for dinner. He told Yarmila about some problems he had been having at work and the problems he was having with fixing the pool pump as well. So the computer chip project he had been working on at work wasn't looking too good. It was looking to be canceled, which really would result in people under him losing their jobs. So he was very stressed out about that. And after dinner, he decided he was going to go work on his computer until he had to go to bed. And he said Yarmila remained downstairs watching the TV show ER. What year was this? 1997. Okay, that makes sense. ER? <laughs> Which started who? George Clooney. There you go. I watched ER when I was, I probably watched ER younger than I should have been watching ER. Mm. I There were, really was no filter in my house. It was the first Grey's Anatomy, mm-hmm. you could say. OG Grey's Anatomy. OG. And you remember in the 90s, I guess they still do this now, but when they would have crossovers, like when the people from ER were on Friends, mm-hmm. that was the best. There you go. So Dr. Rosalind Cartwright, she's a sleep disorder specialist, and she theorized that Scott had gone to bed with the unfixed pool pump on his mind because he didn't fix it that night. So at some point, he had gotten up, gotten dressed, grabbed a flashlight because it was late at night and a knife so that he could end up cutting a plastic ring around the pump. Now, Yarmela didn't realize he was in the backyard doing this when she heard noises from the backyard and she got up to investigate and she had interrupted Scott, which startled him. Now, in return, he violently attacked Yarmela because she had startled him. And Dr. Cartwright notes that when interrupted sleepwalkers are startled, they have a fight or flight response. You're either going to run or you're getting into it. Yeah, Yeah. you're going to attack. So Dr. Cartwright also felt that Scott didn't know that he was rolling Yarmela into the pool. And it was more likely he had walked into her body, not realizing it was a body and just was kind of shoving it out of the way. Okay. And she points to the neighbor who did report that Scott appeared very dazed and confused when he stood over Yarmela's body. So she also pointed out that Scott had a history of sleepwalking, and this is something he'd had since childhood, and he had not been sleeping well and was under stress from his job. So stress and sleep deprivation are shown to be contributors to someone who sleepwalks. So sleepwalking as a defense for someone who commits murder has been used successfully in the past, believe it or not, in 1982 and again in 
1987. So in 1982, in Scottsdale, Arizona, Steven Steinberg was acquitted of murdering his wife after stabbing her 26 times. Steinberg claimed that he had no memory of stabbing his wife as he had been sleepwalking and therefore not sane when he committed the act. And the jury believed him. And they found Steinberg not guilty due to having a dissociative reaction when he committed the crime. I'm just thinking about, okay, so, sorry, all I can think about is once this all happens, right, and he has, like, a new girlfriend later in life, like, how does that first sleepover go? Because I feel like if I knew I'd never sleep in the same house. Oh, yeah, no. Separate bedrooms with a lock on the door. So in 1987, this time in Scarborough, Canada, Kenneth Parks, who was 24 at the time, had murdered his mother-in-law, Barbara Ann Woods, on May 24th. He was also charged with the attempted murder of his father-in-law. Apparently, Kenneth Parks had stabbed them both with a knife after driving 15 miles from his home to theirs. But soon after, he turned himself into the police. Wasn't he on Ambien or something, too? I feel like there may have been a sleep drug involved with his. I can't. I didn't read that. He might have been. But he did go to trial. It was a 10-week trial and he was acquitted of second-degree murder by the jury. The prosecutors tried to show that Parks had stolen from his employer and had financially ruined his family from his gambling addiction. That was their theory of why he murdered his in-laws, maybe for some inheritance. So after he was acquitted, he was, however, found guilty of stealing over $30,000 from his employer, which he paid back by selling his home. So through the investigation, police discovered that Yarmila wasn't quite as happy with the amount of time Scott was spending on church activities and him wanting more children, which Yarmila didn't really agree with. Now, she had two teenagers, so I think one was like 17, 18 at the time, and one might have been, you know, 15, 16. And Scott, being of the Mormon faith, big families, wanted more kids. And I should have thought about that 15 years ago, buddy. That, that is correct. Yeah. Because I'd be no like, no way. Uh uh-uh. uh. That ship done, that <laughs> ship done sailed. <laughs> No, because you almost have two kids out of the house and like going off to college. And then all of a sudden you want to bring a newborn back in and you're in your like 40s. Nobody wants to do that in their 40s. No, they don't. Ask my family members. I have um, cousins. that They they had two children. One, I think he had graduated high school and was in college. And their other one had just graduated high school and was going off to college. Right. So they're thinking, all right, empty nesters. Yeah. Hello. Pregnant. So here comes my third cousin. (laughs) We were all just like, oh. I'm, they're great. They love her. She's awesome. But I just... But like, it was a surprise. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it wasn't bland. But again, she, Yarmela was like, I'm not, I'm not really down with that. So it had even gotten to the point that Yarmela was possibly considering a divorce. She had made no moves to contact a divorce attorney or anything like that. There was no proceedings in place, just something that she had mentioned to friends. So now the state hired their own sleep expert, Dr. Mark Pressman, and they wanted him to look at the behaviors that Scott had engaged in that night. So Pressman dismissed the four-day sleep study as he felt the delta waves could also be found in people suffering from sleep apnea. So how do you tell the difference? Like, okay, you have a little problem breathing during night, or are you truly have these waves that indicate you're a sleepwalker? He also noted that sleepwalkers can't distinguish day from night. So Scott getting up and retrieving a flashlight didn't make any sense to him because you can't tell if it's day or night. So why would you get a flashlight? So Dr. Pressman felt that Scott was consciously aware of what he was doing that night. And he evidenced this by being seen by the neighbor going back inside the house to wash his hands. 
So he had stabbed Yarmela. He left her on the pool deck. He had gone back inside. He cleaned up. He took off his bloody clothes. He put them in the knife in the plastic container, then walked them down the stairs and put them in the trunk of his car. He also had put band-aids on the cuts on his hands he had received from the stabbing. He was also seen by the neighbor calming down the dog. And he thought that that was a very strange behavior because he shouldn't even have taken in the fact that the dog, that the dog was, was barking. Right. And he claimed he had no memory of Yarmela screaming. The scream that notified the neighbor something was wrong and he said that really should have woke him up also touching the cold water would have woken him up from a sleepwalking episode he held her head down under the water so in all dr pressman noted 65 behaviors scott had engaged in that were inconsistent with someone who sleepwalks now all of these incidences convinced the prosecutor that scott fallader was awake and not sleepwalking as he claimed i also feel convinced i do too (laughs) So in May 1999, Scott Fallader went on trial and he pleaded not guilty to first degree murder. Prosecutor Juan Martinez, who also is fairly famous because he prosecuted, and this would be years later, Jody Arias, which is a case we might have to cover someday, but it's pretty much been covered. So I want to wait a while till we do that. That's a fascinating case. Mm -hmm. So he theorized that Scott had planned to murder his wife and blame it on an unknown intruder. Now, the defense plan was to show that Scott was not guilty due to him sleepwalking at the time. And again, they had other cases that individuals had gotten acquitted from. They would have a slew of sleep disorder experts come and testify and character witnesses to testify on Scott's behalf. So what the prosecution theorized was that on the night of the murder, after the children had, or I should say teenagers, had went to bed, Scott had gotten Yarmila to come out into the backyard. And this was sometime around 11 p.m. Now, once there, he started stabbing her, leaving her severely wounded on the pool deck while he went upstairs to get change his clothes, clean up, and bandage his hands. Then he came back outside after putting his stuff in the trunk, and that's when he quieted the dog. He noticed Yarmela was still breathing, so he dragged her over the pool and drowned her. So on a side note, when Yarmela's body was found, she was not wearing her wedding ring. So I don't know if that was also indication of there was some strain in the marriage, that she wasn't very happy. So the murder itself And all the cleanup and everything took about an hour to commit in total, which again doesn't fit that 10 to 20 minute time frame for sleepwalkers. So prosecutors felt that Scott's original plan had been to leave Yarmila in the pool, go back to bed, and have his children find her the next morning to make it seem like Maid had gone outside for something and then she was attacked in the backyard. However, that plan went out the window when the neighbor had called police. Now, prosecutors also felt that Scott knew about the sleepwalking defense that Kenneth Parks had used successfully in Canada, as he had apparently talked to a co-worker about the case three weeks before his wife's murder. However, this was never brought up in trial. It's a little coincidental. Well, they couldn't, the prosecutor couldn't, he brought this evidence, I think this was like some pre-trial motions that they were going to bring these individuals here to talk about what they had heard Scott say. Mm-hmm. However, it was all hearsay. Right. So the person that was going to come talk said, well, I heard it from someone who said they had this conversation with him. So the problem for the prosecution was that there was still no real motive as to why he killed her. The age-old reasons of jealousy, cheating, insurance money really weren't the issue. But keep in mind, the state does not have to prove motive. It just helps. Well, and in this case, if she was, I'd like to know what source said she was considering divorce, because if he was as devout to his Mormon faith, that could have been something that triggered him. Could have been, possibly. From my understanding, I don't think there were any witnesses that did testify. Again, kind of it was the hearsay kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, I heard from so-and-so, I heard from so-and-so. And And when they talked to so-and-so, so-and-so is like, well, no, not really. 
you know, kind of thing. So the case went to the jury and the jury came back with a guilty verdict on June 23rd, 1999. And the judge sentenced Scott Fallater to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now, this was a death penalty case. That's what the prosecutor was going for. But the judge was swayed by letters for leniency, not only from Scott and Yarmila's children, but also the victim's mother. She did not want him put to death. She didn't want him free. She wanted him in prison for the rest of his life. She believed he was guilty, but she did not want him to be taken away from her grandchildren. So the jury, they I saw an interview where a jury member talked about, you know, their deliberations after the fact. And one thing that the jury could not get over was the number of stab wounds and the dragging of Yarmila into the pool why apparently he was sleepwalking. Again, they, it feels that they believe Dr. Pressman's testimony more than anything because, again, all these 65 incidences that didn't really match up to somebody who w- would be a true sleepwalker. Mm-hmm. Plus some of the experts, and again, this was the battle of the experts at this trial, which I think confused the jury somewhat when I think you put too many experts on. And again, they felt that the more complex tasks that were committed, the less likely someone was to sleepwalk. And they just didn't feel that with Scott did that night was sleepwalking, really, when it came down to it. So some of the jury members didn't feel Scott's testimony because he did testify on his own behalf. And that was over two hours in length, was very truthful. They felt that he was putting on more of a tearful show. They didn't think it was a very genuine testimony. So at the end, Scott Fallater didn't see how the jury could find him guilty of this premeditated murder. And to this day, as he sits in prison, he still claims his innocence. And that is the sleepwalking murder case. I like it. There you go. Good job, Trish. So if you guys would like to reach out to us, if you have opinions on this case, if you have case ideas, anything like that, you can do so through our website, criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. We also have a Facebook page, Criminal Discourse Podcast, and an Insta, Criminal Dis Pod. So you can reach out to us on any of those platforms. We also have a YouTube channel. Yes, with our little clips and things. I think we're up to like 21 subscribers. Maybe 22. It is crazy. It really is. Look out YouTube. Here we come. Here we come with our 21 subscribers. (laughs) Taking over the world. One subscriber at a time. So we hope that you are all staying safe. Again, we're all hopeful of these vaccines that are getting approvals. Hopefully can be, I don't know. I don't think I'm going to get it right away, though. I might let like the first round of people well, I think healthcare, like frontline workers right. are getting it first. And then after that, maybe like educators, those at high risk. Yeah. And then it'll go I down from there. I might give them like a year. Okay. Like just let's see. Let's see how this goes. Okay. Right. And then and then I'll go. I'll yeah. just keep wearing my mask or I'll stay in my house until then. But I just, I, I don't know. Vaccines make me nervous anyway. Yeah. I mean, I get them, but. but look at polio. It was the same thing. They had to do a national, you know, vaccines for polio back yep. when it hit our country. So, and that all worked out well. So, <laughs> fingers, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, guys. <laughs> fingers crossed. <laughs> all right. So, as we always in the show, if you see something, say something. You might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime. Like if you hear moaning from your neighbor's backyard. Don't assume they're making love. It could be somebody being stabbed and (laughs) thrown into a pool if there's one there. So as always, stay safe, wear your mask, wash your hands, social distance. But we also, especially in these stressful times, need to be kind to one another. So until next time, guys. Bye. Bye.